How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. Ready to talk about Pumpkinhead. Out of the womb, ready to talk about Pumpkinhead. <laughs> We're all out of the womb. Mm-hmm. Luckily, or, I was resurrected in an old pumpkin patch. It would, uh, it would give us more to talk about if we were still in the womb. I think it would be an interesting <laughs> twist on this podcast. <laughs> if we are like currently still in the womb. Also great. Oh, man, it'd be really hard to watch movies. Great recording quality in the womb. That's true. <laughs> so good, good soundproofing. I was going to say the soundproofing is amazing. <laughs> Really huge echoey hall outside of Justin's mom's so. uh, <laughs> Wow. Oh, oh, it's oh. back. It's oh. back. <laughs> We're doing uh, that again, huh? We we sure that's, are. Look at this guy. <laughs> king Our, of the king of the callbacks here. Yep. Well, hello and welcome to Cinema Shock. This is the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them. I'm one of your hosts, and my name is Gary Horn. I am co-host Justin Bishop. And I take DUIs and motorcycle safety very seriously. I'm writer-comedian Mr. Todd A. Davis. This is the Roulette episode, where we watch a movie chosen at random and dissect it for you fine folks as a breath of fresh air between our regularly scheduled series. Did you say fresh chair? Fresh, fresh air. I heard fresh chair. You would. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know what that means. (laughs) So yeah, cinema shock. This is cinema shock roulette number three. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is our third time doing this. We're going to do this in between series. Like Todd said, Uh, this time the wheels of fate have chosen a fun movie that kind of ties into our last James Cameron series pretty well, I think. Uh, so, and that was not planned. It was just a happy accident, just a happy little accident. We're all happy accidents, really. <laughs> uh, what do you guys think the dirt budget was on this movie? Pretty high. Uh, it was only a $3 million production, so at least like a million in yeah. dirt. Million, uh, 1.25. 1.25 million in dirt. They, they, always, they always over, you know, they always overestimate. So we just concluded our series on James Cameron. Hopefully you guys uh, all listened to that. It went on for, uh, I don't know, a year and a half or so, I think, uh, is about how long we talked about James Cameron. And one person that we talked about pretty regularly over the course of that series was Stan Winston. Uh, Winston is a legendary makeup effects creator. If you're listening to this show, I'm sure you've heard the name, uh, but he was very instrumental in the shaping of Cameron's career. Uh, he created the Terminator endoskeleton puppet and the makeup effects for the Terminator films. He created the alien queen and aliens, and he also co-founded James Cameron's digital effects company, digital domain. 
Kane. Uh, so it seems really serendipitous that in choosing our next Cinema Shock Roulette entry, uh, the Wheels of Fate have given us a chance to really take a dive into Stan Winston's career as we discuss his directorial debut, Pumpkinhead. Looking for an old woman. She lives somewhere in the mountains hereabouts. All she can do is take you straight to hell. You go home and you bury your boy. Some folks will say is how she's got powers. Who are you? Ed Harley. What do you want, Ed Harley? Say it. You're looking for vengeance. Vengeance. Say it. There's no graveyard way back deep in them woods. The thing you're looking for is in there. It was an accident. It's got to run its course. Now it begins. It begins. It begins. So most of you were dug up before this film was around, but just to cover ourselves like a little kid's pair of Coke bottle lenses, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Uh, yeah, we're going to get into a lot of uh, the, the nitty gritty on Pumpkinhead, as Todd said. Uh, so Stan Winston... Sam Winston was born on April 7th, 1946 in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, after graduating high school, he studied painting and sculpture at the University of Virginia. He graduated there in 1968. And then in 1969, he moved over to the West Coast. He wanted to go to Hollywood. He was actually an aspiring actor, believe it or not. Uh, and But after you know spending a little bit of time in Hollywood, he struggled to find work. Uh, he had a young family to support, so he needed to do something where he was bringing in a little bit of income. So he began to work as an apprentice makeup artist at Walt Disney Studios. Uh, there he worked under the head of Disney makeup department, uh, a guy named Robert J. Schiffer, Bob Schiffer. Bob Schiffer was a Disney legend or is a Disney legend. Uh, and he got his start back in the 1930s 1932 was when he got the start in the makeup business he did makeup Jeez. on the marx brothers horse feathers at the age of 17 wow God. throughout the 1930s he worked on films like mutiny on the bounty the hunchback of notre dame and the wizard of oz uh, he arrived at disney in 1968 uh, not long before winston arrived and then throughout his tenure at disney which lasted until his retirement in 2001 Schiffer worked on everything from Bedknobs and Broomsticks to the Shaggy DA to Tron and Splash. Uh, he even helped turn a dog into a Frankenstein monster in the 1984 short film Frankenweedy, which was an early effort by Tim Burton, uh, which is, of course, a guy that Stan Winston's going to end up working with a lot over the course of his career. Uh, so, and I mentioned, you know, Schiffer's background because this is kind of to say Winston's, you know, when he entered the business, he was working directly under like one of the legendary guys in the business. This is a pretty promising start to a very promising career. Yeah. And uh, Todd should also appreciate looking back on Stan Winston when he was graduating and uh, going into the university of Virginia, he was also a stand-up comic. Was so, he? What? Yeah, he was a stand-up comic working oh, in that, fun. which got him into acting. And then that's when he went to the West coast. And oh, that was wild. really weird. So yeah, God, I wonder if there's any, I wonder if there's any, uh, sound clips or footage of that that would say, be not, so not, wild <laughs> not a lot of camcorders floating around in the 1960s so. that's true <laughs> <laughs> unless he ended up on ed sullivan or something i don't think you're gonna find right anything. right right <laughs> <laughs> well when he was a kid uh, stan winston had been fascinated by puppetry and mask making which is what led him to pursue that disney apprenticeship 
but it was during his time working under Schiffer that he truly found his passion for makeup effects, and he embarked on an entirely new career path. A couple years later, 1972, Winston founded his own company, Stan Winston Studio, and a year later in 1973, he actually won his first Emmy for his effects work on a made-for-TV film called Gargoyles. Not the, car- not the cartoon show from the 90s. Not the cartoon show. This is a, uh, I look it up. These gargoyles look really silly, but I guess by 1973, <laughs> made for TV standards, they were enough to get you an Emmy. So he worked on a few other TV projects throughout the 1970s. He won his second Emmy in 1974 for his work on the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. Uh, he even worked on the Star Wars holiday special during this time. He created oh. the Wookiee costumes for that, you know, the Wookiee Life Day stuff. Yeah. Uh, he also worked on several episodes of the Planet of the Apes TV series. Bruce uh, Bruce Valage co-wrote the Star Wars holiday special. It's mostly important just so that he gets yet another mention on this podcast. When if you'd <laughs> asked me like a year ago, I'd say he'll never get mentioned on this podcast. Uh, Bruce Valanche <laughs> is a legend. Of course, he's going to come up again and again. <laughs> uh, Winston had worked on a few movies during this time as well, often uncredited and often on films that were kind of low budget exploitation types. Uh, movies like The Bat People, uh, a movie called The Bat People, believe it or not, was not an A-list movie. It <laughs> that was produced for the low-budget production company, American International Pictures, who, you know, released a lot of Roger Corman stuff. Uh, but his first ho- high-profile film credit was Sidney Lumet's 1978 film, The Wiz, uh, a reimagining of The Wizard of Oz. I'm sure you, you guys are probably familiar with it. It's got Michael yeah. Jackson as the scarecrow, you know. Yeah. So he did the makeup effects for that. Then in 1981, he worked on four films that year. He worked on an early Oliver Stone horror film called The Hand. Uh, He did some uncredited work on Friday the 13th, part two. He worked on Gary Sherman's Dead and Buried, of course, which we discussed in full during our Dan O'Bannon series a while back. So if you want the nitty gritty on that one, head back to that episode. He made Uh, that uh, badass, remember that, that badass body in the hospital bed, right? Yeah. 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 I forgot about that. Yeah. With the needle in the eyeball that we're like, what the fuck? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, how'd they do this? And it turns out it's a full, like, full life-size animatronic, basically, or a puppet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then also in 1981, he worked on Heartbeats, a movie directed by rock and roll high school's Alan Arkish. I think we've actually mentioned this movie before, maybe back on our Dead and Buried episode. Uh, this movie starred Andy Kaufman and Bernadette Peters as two robots who fall in love. So they're in full, like, prosthetic makeup. <laughs> Google, Google some images of Heartbeats. Uh, it's, it's, it's Andy Kaufman as a robot, the whole movie. So it's very, uh, can, can, can we go ahead and get heart beeps added to the list of roulette episodes? I'm pretty sure it's already on there. <laughs> is I mean, there? If, okay. if it's not, we'll make sure it is. Uh, but Heartbeats is notable because it landed Winston, his first Oscar nomination. This was actually the inaugural award in the category of best makeup. First time they'd ever given one. He got nominated for it. Though he did lose to Rick Baker for An American Werewolf in London, which is, if you're going to lose, to, uh, I that's mean, the that, that's the one yeah. to lose to. Uh, but still, that's a pretty promising start to the 1980s for Stan Winston, which uh, that period proved to be the most creatively fertile period of his career. I mean, when you think of Stan Winston, I think the majority of the stuff you think about is in the 80s up to the like the early 90s. That's when you really think of like the golden age of, of makeup effects. Sure. It was his work with Rob Bottin on John Carpenter's The Thing uh, where he was actually brought in to help complete some designs, primarily the dog thing, but basically we'll get into the story of the thing later on, but basically Rob Bottin and his crew, they had so much to create on that movie that they had to get some outside help. And they called on Stan Winston because they were friends to come help. And that 
work, even though the movie didn't do particularly well, it really got him noticed and got him, it, it brought him to prominence in Hollywood. If you're, uh, if you're overwhelmed and you need assistance, props to Rob Bottin for bringing in the best possible person right. <laughs> to yeah. handle this. <laughs> yeah. uh, which he, he makes a, a weird fucking hand puppet for that dog. That, I love uh, it. That is awesome. <laughs> it's so good. Following that film, he did work on Friday the 13th Part 3. He actually created a new sculpt for Jason's head for that one. That's the first one where Jason's got, you know, the hockey mask and stuff on. Uh, he created the Mr. Roboto face mask for the band Styx. So go look up that video if you want to see that work. Nice. Uh, he worked on the short-lived TV series Manimal. And of course, in 1984, he created the Terminator for James Cameron. And his work on the Terminator gave Winston a whole new level of fame. With that film, he became one of the premier makeup and special effects technicians in Hollywood. He followed up the Terminator with John Carpenter's Starman. Uh, he did Ghoulies. He did Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars, which we've also talked about on the show. He did James Cameron's Aliens, for which he won his first Oscar. He did The Monster Squad, and he did Predator. This is all over the course of less than five years. You say he's like the second. I think he was like the second ever special effects person to get like a star on the Walk of Fame. Like he's he's a Stan Winston's kind of a big. Deal. I wonder who the first was. Maybe Dick Smith. I'm I'm I I don't know. Might have um, been might have been one of the Westmore family. I've been finding their stuff all throughout Star Trek. But yeah, yeah. I just feel like Dick Smith is like when people talk about the the Godfather of makeup effects. Dick Smith is like the guy. I'm somewhat of a Dick Smith myself. Which is what's weird is this. It's all going to come together in this episode. That's because... right. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so not long after he's worked on Predator, he received the script uh, for a script from Dino De Laurentiis for something called Pumpkinhead, which is a horror film based on a poem by someone named Ed Justin. Uh, De Laurentiis was actually interested in hiring Winston uh, to create the film's creature effects. He, uh, he wanted him to create the titular pumpkin head, but Winston saw this as an opportunity to make his directorial debut. Nice. So it seems odd when I was, I had no idea going into this movie because, and I've seen this movie quite a few times, but I had no idea that it was based on a poem, even though it says it in the opening credits, I guess I just never clocked that. Uh, so it seems, it seemed weird to me that a poem of all things would be optioned for the basis of a horror movie. That's not exactly what happened. We'll get into the details on that. Uh, and I tried to look up a little bit more info on the poet, on Ed Justin, but every time, if you look him up, all you find is pumpkin head. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I would like to hear um, our own Mr. Todd A. Davis uh, has, has is going to perform a dramatic reading of this poem so that we can kind of get a get the gist of what it is about this poem that would inspire an entire film. I'd be happy to. <clears throat> Here we go. By Ed Justin. Keep away from Pumpkinhead. Unless you're tired of living. His enemies are mostly dead. He's mean and unforgiving. Laugh at him and you're undone. But in some dreadful fashion, vengeance he considers fun. 
and plans it with a passion. Time will not erase or blot a plot that he's been brewing. It's when you think he's forgot, he'll conjure your undoing. Bolted doors and windows barred. Guard dogs prowling in the yard won't protect you in your bed. Nothing will. From Pumpkinhead. All right, thank you, Todd. That was very dramatic and kind of spooky, honestly. Unnecessary, unnecessarily creepy, Todd. My <laughs> pleasure. <laughs> Started off as like a fucking one of the podcasts I listen to sometimes when I go to sleep is from tracks to relax. And it's like, they tell you like a story or walk you through a guided sleep meditation. I think yeah. The waves like gave me that at first. I thought that's what was going to happen or the wind or whatever that was. And then it turns into this fucking pumpkin head shit. <laughs> <laughs> I could just well, imagine trying to fall asleep to that. Like, oh, well now, now I'm not tired at all. <laughs> Why do I now? <laughs> well, the way that this poem got turned into a horror film is actually a pretty interesting story. Uh, back in the 1970s, two friends named Mark Carducci and J Gary Girani had the idea to write a backwoods horror story. Uh, neither Carducci nor Girani had many credits to their names. Uh, Pumpkinhead would, in fact, end up being the first film that Girani was ever involved with, while Carducci's only real credit before Pumpkinhead was the 1986 horror film Neon Maniacs and a single episode of Tales from the Dark Side, the TV series that was produced by George Romero. Mm. Uh, but at the time they were working on this backwoods horror story idea, they were just a couple of kids who wanted to get into movie making. And of course, where do you start but with a backwoods horror movie? I mean, that's where, that's where so many people get their start oh, in yeah. filmmaking. So they started coming up with some ideas for the story, one of which was called The Seven Gargoyles of Satan, which Ooh. sounds like a pretty cool like death metal band or something yeah <laughs> <laughs> the concept of this story was that for each of man's sins there was a different demon and in their story the monster would be the demon of revenge and they had planned on this being just a little kind of low budget 16 millimeter horror film something to get their foot in the door and they actually started working on some early pre-production for the film which by that point they'd renamed armageddon it's a little less wordy i guess in the seven gargoyles of satan which sounds like it would be you know a, an aip picture from the 60s or something <laughs> For their monster design, they, they kind of went the John Carpenter Halloween route, right? And they just went out to a, a costume store, a Halloween store, and they bought a Don Post Halloween mask. Not of William Shatner this time, but of the creature from the Black Lagoon. And then they modified it to create their demon. Well, nothing ever really happened with that film, whatever reason. I don't, I'm not sure why it never got made, probably because... You know, they didn't have the money to do it or they didn't have the resources or whatever. But years later, Carducci pitched this concept of a demon of revenge to a couple of producers and they went for it. They liked the idea. Uh, so he calls his friend Gary. He's like, hey, they went for it. They liked the idea about the revenge demon that we'd been working on. Uh, and they're going to produce this movie for us. But the, the demon has a new name now. It's called Pumpkinhead. Gary Girardi didn't know where the word where the name Pumpkinhead came from. 
Uh, it turns out the name pumpkin, the, the idea to call the demon pumpkin head came from one of those producers that he had been meeting with a guy named Billy Blake. Now, Billy Blake, he didn't have a very impressive resume before this still didn't really have much of an impressive resume after this. Uh, but his only real credit before Pumpkinhead was, had been as a co-producer on Rhinestone, the Sylvester Stallone Dolly Parton movie that was directed by uh, Bob Clark, the, you know, the Porky's Christmas story, oh, yeah. Black Christmas, that guy, that, that, that Bob Clark, nice. uh, not, not a great movie, despite the draw of both Sylvester Stallone and Dolly Parton being in a movie together. <laughs> Well, a friend of Billy Blake's uh, named Ed Justin had written this poem about a monster with the name Pumpkinhead. Billy Blake in an interview said that he thinks he just kind of wrote it for his kids. So it's kind of a lark, you know, mm. but he thought that that would be a great name for a movie monster, Pumpkinhead. That's a cool name. Yeah, this uh, Ed Justin guy, apparently they said he was like in licensing. So that, uh, of course, made this process a whole lot easier, I guess. But uh, uh, they were kind of familiar with him. I guess he did some stuff with Hollywood for that. It just it, that that name is what really stuck with everyone. They just yeah. something about the name caught on. And so nobody could let go of it. Yeah, I mean, and if you you read the poem or listen to Todd's uh, reading of the poem, you can kind of see how that con the concept of what he's describing in the poem does mesh pretty well with the idea of a demon of revenge you know mm. like the, the two ideas kind of work together so carducci and gironi they got to work on the screenplay and there were probably seven or eight drafts of the screenplay written before stan winston ever gets involved they wrote a few more once stan got involved with in the writing process because he helped with that as well and the most of the stuff I saw just for the record with like him is he was like expanding on a lot of the themes that were in the, these guys had it down, but like right. Stan, like coming in, like really helped with, and I know we're going to talk more about Stan, but um, I mean, one of the examples I saw was like, uh, he was a big fan of like Forbidden Planet uh, yeah. as one of his favorite science fiction films. The idea of the creature coming out of the subconscious mind that that was one of the things like Winston actually added to it. Uh, Cause at first it was more like a, just a witch conjures up a demon or something. Oh, like that's that. cool. Cause that's a big part of the mythology of Pumpkinhead when you think yeah. about, you know. yeah. But now, but, but Stan liked the idea of it coming from Ed Harley instead, right. you know, right. and that sort of thing and having to kill yourself to kill the demon and that sort of stuff. Interesting. So the producer shot the film all over Hollywood and they were turned down by one studio after another until they met with legendary producer Dino De Laurentiis. Dino De Laurentiis saw something in the story, uh, something promising, and before long, his production company, De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, signed on to finance the film. Now, this sounds like great news. Uh, Dino De Laurentiis is one of those like big names in genre filmmaking, especially in the in the '80s more than any any other time. Uh, and at the time, you know, they they produced DEG, the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group. They produced some pretty great stuff during this time period. They uh, produced Michael Mann's Manhunter, which is the first uh, appearance of Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. Uh, David Lynch's Blue Velvet, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 2, and Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark, starring Lance Hendrickson. Oh. Uh, but little did the filmmakers know that the involvement of De La Rentis would actually end up spelling the film's doom. Yeah, it's worth mentioning uh, Alex Benedetti uh, was one of the guys that they were was like a big fan of this, too. And he he's the executive producer on Pumpkinhead, but he's also on Evil Dead 2. And so uh, De Laurentiis was you know financing that. And so some, somehow that all worked out. He's he's Dino De Laurentiis's son in law. Uh, and so that's how, that's how that worked out. Yeah. So that's <laughs> yeah. So it was a uh, it smoothed it over for an easy sell. Basically, so uh, yeah. Is he it, married to uh, Giada? I, I don't think 
I don't know how many yeah. kids De Laurentiis has. I think I, I <laughs> she's just the only one I know. <laughs> yeah, I think that might have been it. But they're divorced. Whoever it was now, uh, but they're divorced now. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it's kind of sad actually. This uh, the what the other writer, uh, Mark Carducci. Yeah, he's he ended up killing himself not long after this. Not long, long after know. this, yeah, just yeah. a couple of years later, I think. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I don't know why that just randomly should have been brought up, but there, there it is. <laughs> actually, well, I'm sure we would have come around to it at some point anyway. <laughs> it was De Laurentiis who reached out to Stan Winston about the film, wanting him to create the creature, as we said before. But Winston saw something in Pumpkinhead that made it seem kind of perfect for his first film as a director. Uh, it was a small film, for one thing. It had a relatively low budget. And he felt that because of the small size and scope of it, it was something that he'd be able to handle as a first-time director. Uh, so he agreed to create the creature effects for De Laurentiis, but only if he could direct the movie as well. Uh, ironically, okay. though, Winston didn't actually create the Pumpkinhead creature personally. Uh, as he focused on refining the film's narrative, working on the script alongside Mark Carducci, Gary Gerani, and uh, Richard C. Weinman, who's another one of the producers, he's got a story credit on this as well. Uh, Winston passed the job of creating the, the creature to other artists at Stan Winston Studios, uh, which was a team led by Alec Gillis, Shane Mahan, John Rosengramp, and Tom Woodruff Jr. Uh, this was actually the first time that he'd ever fully turned over the creature design to his crew. He had been working on, uh, according to uh, the Winston Effect, that art book that he, he put out, I, I saw some stuff from that, and uh, uh, he had been doing the movie Parasite in 1982, uh, which is like a Charles Band movie. Uh, another name like Dino De Laurentiis that just gets brought Comes up, up all, all the time. time. <laughs> yeah, but uh, he got the, uh, no pun intended, the bug to direct back then and he's been thinking about it ever since and uh and so when he saw this movie he said a quote it was a small picture something i thought i could handle as a director and i felt there was a lot that i could bring to the story so i told the producers yeah i'll do the creature but only if i direct the movie so like what you were saying what sealed the deal for him is the writers got behind him i think they originally had a guy uh armand uh mastroianni was going to direct but uh, at this point, Winston had just done second unit directing for Aliens with James Cameron right? and got a good uh, report from there. And and that success is what sealed them trusting him to do the directing job. They they looked at him as, uh, according to Gary Gerani, since uh, there was this feeling that this was a first class creature creator and a hell of a second unit director. So let's do this deal. Uh, like he wants to do and then, then we can give this low budget movie a monster that can stand next to alien and predator and then uh the cool part is is that when you get winston as your director and revising the script and all this stuff they they talk about like one of the best parts is like you just really get to even with his crew like plan out everything in the yeah. script like you know exactly what you can do with the effects and what you're going to get away with and the cheapest best way to do it uh, so they would do these rewrites. Uh, I think Carducci was in California and Gerani was in like Brooklyn or something. They would like fly back and forth and, uh, revise some pages based on Stan Winston stuff, send it to Stan. He would write it off or, you know, like sign off on it. He said that one of the good things with Stan was he's such a horror buff. In addition to a creature creator that we were all kind of on the same page on all of this. Uh, they said like, for instance, for the, uh, sequence with the burned out church, uh, Stan knew that we were all familiar with Howard Hawks thing. So he said, you know, what we should do here is some kind of moment with a silhouetted pumpkin head standing in the doorway. We'll do the backlighting on him and stuff. So like that was all described specifically 
in the script exactly how it would look. They said the other thing they were taking to it, which I thought was kind of nice for this, is that James Cameron was a big influence on all yeah. of this. They said the, <laughs> the funny thing is that his gritty, realistic flavor, uh, what he had done with Aliens and the Terminator was at the forefront of their mind. It's the horror and sci-fi thing that he was pulling off and that Stan, yeah. you know, Stan had that in his mind, too. They, they actually referred to Pumpkinhead during the filming as a backwoods Terminator. <laughs> I mean, you can definitely see the Cameron influence on it, especially in that shot you're talking about in the church, the way it's lit. Like, it's very, very much like a James Cameron movie. It really is. Yeah. Uh, and Winston, he went to his crew and he basically told them, hey, I'm the director on this. I'm the client. You guys are the effects guys. So uh, and it, it did, you know, kind of like what you were saying, like it worked out really well because they had a shorthand, you know, like a lot of times the way the crew talks about it is with a lot of directors, they kind of had to teach other directors like how the effects process works that they didn't have to do that with Stan Winston because he hell he invented the uh, the process you know yeah. like they that he knew exactly what they could do and what he could ask them to do and what they'd be able to pull off so they uh, they would draw out designs for the creature they would present them to Winston he would make suggestions just like a, any other director would i have to imagine that he had more he probably made more specific requests for changes than a lot of directors might except for someone like James Cameron uh, but essentially it was like a director studio or effects studio relationship just like any other film just with less of the uh, having to educate the director on how the effects business works. Right. And this does the design of this creature, as they were working on it, they really saw this as a labor of love, the special effects crew. Uh, they knew that this film meant a lot to Stan because it was his first film as a director. And they really wanted to, they wanted to do it right for their boss, this guy who they really respected and really liked. Woodruff says in an interview with the uh, icons of Friday, he said it, it, it was like your parents turning over the keys to the house and saying, okay, we're going to be back in three months. And he said every day was like an amazing day at work. You just felt like nothing is going or can go wrong with this movie. Uh, not that it wasn't hard work. You just knew everything we built was going to be used the proper way because there's a director involved who knows and understands the importance to make your stuff work. The design of the creature they were talking about, you know, that was a, that was a big discussion about. Uh, Gerardi was saying at, at first, you know, he said Mark and I played around with the revenge demon uh, as a Lovecraftian skelly monster, like the ones in our Super 8 projects from way back. Uh, then we got sidetracked into an interesting area. A lot of people thought, well, if it's called Pumpkinhead, it's got to have a pumpkin on its head. <laughs> and uh, we did, so we started getting into like doing like a Sleepy Hollow type creature where the yeah. witch would tell Ed Harley to go to the graveyard, dig up a corpse, cut its head off, bring it back. In the meantime, she's going to be carving out this pumpkin with evil eyes. Uh, when he brings the body back, she brings it all to life. But then Stan gets involved. Uh, who's our, he says, you know, the greatest creature maker around. He says, you know, you're not going to tell him to put a pumpkin on a, a body. Uh, so we got <laughs> back to the Lovecraftian idea. It's still a bloated head. And we even threw in the extra line in the film about how he comes from the old pumpkin patch in the right, graveyard. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he said it, it, Stan made it very clear because uh, they were like, so do you want the jack o lantern head? And he was just like, no, I do not want a pumpkin for a head. Uh, <laughs> he said he comes from a pumpkin patch. Diseased. It's a metaphor. Yeah. And, uh, he's like, you could even have like weird faces on the pumpkins and stuff around it or something, just some, some kind of disease looking pumpkins. But the, the actual creature is not going to be that. It, it, they, he said they felt at the time 
in the 80s, especially as slashers were dying off and like more creature features were coming back, or at least some were, that it felt really easy to do. Like they, they said they felt like there were a lot of change head movies around mm-hmm. uh, and showing transformations. They liked the idea of creating something that you could really play a lot with shadows and let your imagination handle it. Just a weird fucking creature. And, yeah. uh, and I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, when they were they went about designing it, they they started by designing it on paper, pencil drawings, of course, uh, and it went through several iterations during that initial process, kind of like what you're describing them, just working out ideas for what this thing's going to look like because it's not really described uh, in the script necessarily. But then once Stan Winston approved the design, the next step was to sculpt a full size pumpkin head and the adolescent pumpkin head that we see kind of briefly towards the beginning. And to move along this process, they they split up sculpting duties between them some of them would do the head some of them would do the body uh winston actually chose tom woodruff one of his effects guys to portray Pumpkinhead in the film uh before creating the entire suit they they did what they called the trash bag test where they created a version of the costume in all black they basically wanted to see what it would look like in silhouette how it would look when it moved uh when how it's like like you're talking about like how the it moves as a shadow as opposed to just like big goofy looking creature you know because they're going to backlight it they're going to have it moving through the darkness and that silhouette really has to work uh, we've talked about this on the show before i think where uh, some of the greatest movie creatures all have like a great recognizable silhouette you know oh yeah it's why godzilla is so iconic because yeah. you, you can see a silhouette of Godzilla and you know exactly what you're looking at. So Z, they got the xenomorph, the predator. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So Woodruff gets in this suit. You can find footage of this on the Stan Winston Studios website, by the way, is a treasure trove of behind the scenes photos and videos. And you can see Tom Woodruff in this. What looks it's like the shape of the pumpkin head suit, but it's just all black just to kind of see how it's going to look moving on screen because you could draw it out all you want if it doesn't look right when it's in motion it's not going to work yeah rosengrant saying like you know the the best part for them with stan is that you know you you mentioned this too it's like the shorthand that you have with each other it's like not something that you never get in another movie so you know we could go to him and ask is this enough? Is this going to do it? And he could look at it and immediately say yeah that's fine or no we need to do more uh he said normally you have like to overbuild just in case the director changes his mind and wants something right. different or whatever. And he said, but like Stan knows exactly what the tools are, what we're going to need, what we won't need. Uh, and we don't have to like educate him like you do with most directors on what's possible. Uh, so it's just so much more fun because Stan can tell you exactly like, oh, I think you're going to need this and you'll probably use this. And it was yeah. just uh, so it's such a nice flow. Well, everybody. that also helps them you know this is a pretty small budget movie i think it was about a three million dollar production so doing it that way and having a director who knows how to use the effects and what's going to be needed means that you're able to get the most for your money because they're not like they're not creating parts of the creature or looks that they're end up they're not going to end up using and wasting money so so they were really able to efficiently use the portion of the budget that was allocated to creating the creature in a way that you might not have with a less experienced director or or director less experienced in creature effects. Mm. So to make pumpkin head taller, uh, you know, he's got those sort of backwards knees, you know, they uh, Woodruff wore mechanical leg extensions. It's really wild to watch footage of him doing this. They're essentially like stilts, but his, his feet are kind of at an angle in these sort of iron shoes. And then the bottom of the, 
the foot is articulated. So the, as he steps, the, the foot kind of moves, like the toes kind of move along with him. Oh, wow. Uh, so he had to learn to walk on these for one thing. Jeez. Uh, so he, uh, because he was there throughout the build process, because he is also one of the special effects guys, he was able to kind of practice using these leg extensions there at Stan Winston Studios before the shoot began. And they would, for, for scenes where you're going to see Pumpkinhead, like in full body, they put a harness rig on him to help him walk upright because otherwise mm. it would have been very difficult to kind of balance, especially on the terrain where they're going to be shooting a lot of this movie. Right. Kind of a cool fun fact about those leg extensions. They were designed initially for the predator. Like they, uh, they were back used... when he was in his pragmatis looking face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. They had it on the predator and it just wasn't working to walk on the weird jungle terrain in those leg extensions. Like they just couldn't make it work. So this was a thing they had stuck back that they were like, we'll use these some other time on something. Yeah. And, and it worked out that way. <laughs> that's fun. I had no idea. That's, that's really, a, that's they, a really uh, great connection. Yeah. And they said that uh, like even some of the dummies in the movie, like uh, especially that Joel kid who gets real fucked up and he gets dropped from a tree at one point and like all this <laughs> stuff like uh, that, that, the dummies they're using there are from Predator. As really? Well. Yeah. Oh, they just, <laughs> they they just saved their dead body dummies. Yeah, they were like, it's it tough <laughs> to find a good dummy. We just have hey, these on the shelf. And <laughs> reduce, reuse, recycle, right? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they also built these articulated hands for close-up shots where you see like Pumpkinhead grabbing stuff. These fully robotic, you know, puppet puppeted hands uh, made out of metal that they would, of course, put, you know, foam latex and stuff over. And then Pumpkinhead's face was a very complex animatronic. Uh, you know, they, they talk about how in a lot of these movies, they have different heads for like different facial movements and expressions because you can't make them do everything. Well, they were able to build Pumpkinhead's face where the entire head, like the brows and the, the jaw and the mouth was fully articulated. So he can like open his mouth in a snarl or have this like kind of mischievous grin that Pumpkinhead has. You know, wow. it was, it was, it's a very complex animatronic for the time. Nice. You forget how, like, when you watch it a few times, you start to realize, like, how, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? But just how aware Pumpkinhead is. He's not a mindless monster. Like, No, he's, not at all. Like, he's very intelligent. <laughs> he's, yeah. uh, he's like, fucking with these people. He's, he's enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> he's uh, enjoying it. But, uh, yeah, so so the, the design with it, like, the head, yeah, it's totally animatronic. The guy's seeing out of, like, the neck holes. That, that are there for like his or he can see out of so right. mm -hmm. uh, you got this fully animatronic head but uh just elaborate for a second too on, on that design like uh Jirani talked about like when they were conceptualizing the thing uh they they were also just to take it back to that camera thing i mentioned with the horror and sci-fi he said we wanted to make it seem like it was another life form from another dimension uh like the famous line magic is just another person's science he says, uh, what we view as magic is another realm of existence that we're not aware of yet. And that's how Stan and everybody approach Pumpkinhead. Like he's conforming to physical laws of somebody else's universe. Uh, what we might perceive as hell is like some kind of alien environment or uh, some other dimension or something. But uh, and for reference, they would they would use like some of the stuff. They, they said they looked at a lot of photos for cadavers and decomposing bodies and stuff like that. Um we wanted they they said they definitely wanted to have the feel of something that had been dead and was partially human but also kind of deformed and evil monstrous yeah. uh but kind not diseased a, yeah disease and they said like you know oh they had that science fiction thought they were like they were also looking at like something folklorish 
uh, you know, like what would a legend describe it as when it's brought to life and that sort of thing. So I just thought it was kind of interesting stuff. Well, so we've got our main character, I guess. I, I would consider Pumpkinhead the main character. The movie's named after him. So we've got yeah. He's settled. <laughs> he's ready to go. They've got it. We've got to get the rest of the cast go, though. We've got to get all the, the human cast. Well, in the lead role was Lance Henriksen as Ed Harley. Uh, I think Henriksen needs no introduction. If we've if you've been listening to this podcast, uh, you know all about Lance Henriksen. Uh, we talked about him quite a bit on our James Cameron series. Uh, he and Stan Winston had, of course, worked together on both The Terminator and Aliens. Aliens being one of, I think, Lance Henriksen's most iconic roles uh, alongside this one. I, w- I would say, like, that's the one thing that gets me these last few times of watching it is just, I will die on the hill that Lance Henriksen does not get enough credit for him at, him as an actor, like just, like legitimately as an actor, uh, not just like oh it's Lance Henriksen that's fun you know like he's he's good in this yeah. movie he's good I, I think that part of his reputation is is comes from the fact that he appears in a lot of trash as well and he can still be good in it you know uh, I'll get to the Pumpkinhead sequels later uh, which he is good in in his few scenes but uh i think that because when you appear in that many like crappy movies you start to get a reputation uh or people forget how good of an actor he actually is you know Um, and he is really he's very good and he's he's good in everything but he is really good in this i felt the shit in this movie like with his kid and stuff like oh yeah and i mean i i Man, I bought in. Like I, he, he definitely, he definitely does not phone in a single frame. Like, not at all. He's, yeah. Well, you know, he, he even he was so invested that he actually got fake teeth made. Those like crooked buck teeth he has, those are not his really? teeth. Really? Yeah. He personally went and had fake teeth made for him to wear to give him that like hillbilly, hillbilly buck tooth look. look. Yeah, and actually, yeah. the the caps he put on actually chipped his real tooth, and he had to get it repaired <laughs> later on. Yeah. <laughs> But, yeah, but, and, he, and, and they that said was not something Stan Winston asked him to do. He just wanted to bring that to the character. No, he he went all in. Um, yeah. I mean, he he I think bought like most of the stuff set up around the cabin for himself mm-hmm. and stuff, like the shotgun he uses. He and, went and bought the silver dollars that he drops into the witch's cup as payment. Yeah, uh, like he bought those uh, for that scene. Like he thought that he should have some kind of payment for her. He said that like in that cabin where they filmed, he actually dropped some of them between the cracks in the floor and that they're probably still there if anyone wants to go look for them. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but, cinema shock road trip. That's a long road trip. That's on the other side of the country. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know a, this movie looks like it's set in our area, our neck of the woods, but it true. was filmed in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, there's a key like character thing. I know we were talking about Pumpkinhead being like the main character, but this is really like an Ed Harley movie. Like it's it's a Lance is the the star. Like oh, he's yeah. he's yeah. he's definitely the guy. And you know, like and I, I think they even know that. That's why they show him as a kid at the beginning, you know, that he sees the pumpkin head thing and stuff right. so it's a story about him but I, I even think in the commentary track they mentioned that there was a scene earlier on in the movie with the kids at like a diner or something like showing them just hanging out to get to know them better and Stan nixed it and said well this, Dino this De Laurentiis a- Dino De Laurentiis nixed it oh did he uh, yeah Stan tried to fight for it and De Laurentiis was uh, adamant that that scene did not need to be there that it was superfluous uh, and they got and Stan and De, Nino De Laurentiis got in a screaming match uh, over this, Whoa. and uh, which is not in Stan Winston's like nature at all. By all accounts, he's a very like meek, fun-loving, like really nice dude. But uh, De Laurentiis was like, 
adamant about taking this scene out. And in that particular case, Dino won the argument and they took it out. Well, and he's right because, I mean, the, even in the commentary track, they're talking about that, you know, that makes it about, it's more about these kids and really their side characters in this. This is more about Harley. Uh, so he, you know, hit him and his journey through this whole thing. So, sure. but yeah, even those fake teeth, just, just for the record, like he didn't, he didn't want, you know, he wasn't trying to do like a caricature. He was very clear about that. He mm -hmm. was, he was trying to make it like, like natural, but like, this is a rural Southern guy who hasn't visited a dentist. You know? Right. Right. Well, right. and you mentioned that opening scene, Gary, that the guy who's trying to get in the house, who's screaming to get in uh, to his like father, to uh, Ed Harley's father's house. And they won't let him in. Uh, that is Dick Warlock. Oh, you know, I'm somewhat of a Dick Warlock myself. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone doesn't know, Dick Warlock is a thing. We've mentioned him on the show before, but he's a, a, a very like, I'd say famous, as famous as a stuntman can be, but a legendary stuntman. He's, in, he's been Michael Myers multiple times. Like, just look up Dick Warlock. Not to mention that he does have the best name on the planet. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's got an amazing name. And he, uh, he, he was apparently working on Aliens at the same, you know, like right before this with, yeah. with these guys. He was in the, they did that, the, the thing you were talking about with the trash bag stuff, they had to do that with the Queen. He was apparently yeah. in the Queen. Oh, he and, was. Yeah, I mean, we talked about that when we talked yeah. about aliens, about them doing that trash bag test on on that as well. But I did not know that Dick Warlock was the. Uh, yeah, they was, were saying that on the commentary that that's, that's cool that he was just buddies with Winston, and uh, they they had him, you know, like in the Alien Queen, it was like Dick Warlock and another guy, and they were just like hanging by a crane with like two long limbs, like swinging them around and stuff, <laughs> and. Also to connect it to the next series, uh, he's also apparently one of the guys on the balcony in Spider-Man. Oh yeah, oh. <laughs> you know when Craig Goblin attacks that balcony. Really? But yeah, so Dick Warlock all over the place. Yeah. So getting into the rest of the cast, uh, we've got Joel, the, who's the dickhead who runs over the kid on his dirt bike. He was played by an actor named John Diaquino, who's probably best known for his role as Lieutenant Benjamin Krieg on Sequest DSV, oh. uh, which I was a big fan of as a kid. Uh, Chris was played by Jeff East. Uh, Jeff East had, Chris, if you don't, if the name doesn't ring a bell, he's kind of the hero guy, the guy with the the kind of curly hair, uh, you know, who, who gets into it with Joel. Well, he, Jeff East, who played him had played Huckleberry Finn in the seventies, uh, in, uh, those, uh, 1970s, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn movies. Those were the movies oh, yeah. that like when you had a substitute teacher at school, they would, <laughs> they would roll the TV in and play those movies. I'm yeah. <laughs> uh, he also played the teenage Clark Kent in Richard Donner's Superman, the original Superman in the, in the, Clark Kent scenes. They dubbed his lines. They yeah, dubbed his lines with Chris, Chris Reeves. Christopher, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's Christopher Reeves' voice. <laughs> but it is him playing him on screen. He yeah. didn't know they were going to dub his lines in that, by the way. until right. he, he didn't know until he saw the movie that they had dubbed him. It's so pissed. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, newcomer Carrie Remsen plays Maggie. Uh, she had previously had a small role in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, but not very much else. Uh, Kimberly Ross plays Kim. Joel Hoffman is Steve or Scratch, I think is what his brother calls him. And then the great Buck Flower plays Mr. Wallace. So I, 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 I know you want to talk about Buck. I have to say I love Joel, Joel is in uh, Slumber Party Massacre 2. If nobody's seen that, that's of a, course I've seen that. Is he the yeah. killer? 
no 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 he's he's one of the he plays a dumb surfer sounding guy who's like whoa let's check out these girls naked and they're he's like one of the two guys that are like trying to peek through the windows before they get murdered part two is the one where the guy has the the um drill guitar i was gonna say before they all get murdered by the driller killer okay has a a electric guitar that's never plugged in it's just no (laughs) that movie's incredible by the way (laughs) slumber party master two is a is a masterpiece yeah (laughs) All right, so uh, yeah, I want to talk about Buck Flower because we—I I don't know that we've had a chance to talk about him on the show yet. I, he may have showed up in something we talked about. I can't remember though, but he's this guy who—he shows up in a lot of stuff. George Buck Flower. Sometimes he's credited under different names, especially in some of his early work. Uh, but he's one of my favorite character actors from the '70s and '80s. Uh, he started his career in movies with names like Satan's Lust, Below the Belt, and The Dirty Dolls. Uh, pretty sure a lot of these films are porn, uh, some hardcore, some softcore. Uh, and a, there's Don't a movie act co- like you're not sure. I'm not sure. I haven't <laughs> seen them. Listen, if I could track them down, I would. Uh, but all I can, all I know is that when I looked them up on uh, Letterboxd, uh, some of the covers to these movies are pixelated. So they're, they're, they're censored. So there's a reason for that. Uh, there's a movie called Mother's Know Best, Mother Knows Best that he's in. Uh, where he plays a character named Boris Clitoris. <laughs> huh. Wow. <laughs> he's also in a, another one of his early films is called Succula, which I can only imagine is some sort of porn riff on Dracula. Boris, Dracula, Boris Dra- Clitoris was Todd's uh, screen name on AOL Instant Messenger. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case you didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, where was I? All right, so uh, Buck Flower. He's in a ton of genre and grindhouse stuff over the years. Uh, he's in stuff like Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS, and its sequel. He's in The Witch Who Came In from the Sea, uh, where I think he was also like a casting director on that one in addition to being in it. He played a lot of bums, a lot of hobos. Just I was going to say, like, usually he's a bum or a drunk. Yeah. Something, you know. it's just because of his look, I guess. I don't, and his gruff kind of voice. Uh, but he's very charismatic, I think. I, this is why I like seeing him on screen. He's always recognizable. He's got a very uh, distinct voice and speaking pattern. I just really like watching this guy on screen. Uh, a lot of folks probably know him best for his appearances in John Carpenter movies over the years. He was in The Fog. He plays uh, Tom. His character's name, I think, is Tommy Wallace. In The Fog, he's like the first one to get killed by the ghost. He's in Starman. He's in They Live. Remember, he's the bum who becomes like rich because of the, because he's obeying the the he's doing what the, the oh, yeah, aliens yeah, want yeah. him to do yeah. uh he's in escape from new york uh he's also in maniac cop he's in mac and me he's in puppet master 2 uh he's even in the back in the future movies he's read the bum in the in back in the future oh, one and two guy. yeah that's him yeah. <laughs> yeah so an absolute legend i i just I, this is the first time we've really seen him in a movie that we've talked about here so i wanted uh, to take the opportunity to sing his praises because I love Buck Flower. Anytime I see him pop up in a movie, I'm excited to see him. I had forgotten that he was in this movie. So when he shows up as Mr. Wallace in this, and he's got, it's a fairly significant role. Uh, I was, I was pretty excited to see him there. Watch where you're going. (laughs) She can't help him. All she can do is carry you straight to hell. That's good. I, I, Buck, he's <laughs> so good. He's so and committed. Because, yeah. like, who else would make that line work? But I love right. that line. Yeah. <laughs> he is great. D- despite his extensive resume, I don't think he ever appeared in a Star Trek movie or series. 
I could be wrong. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff on his IMDb that I might have skipped over. Wait a yeah. second. I'm sorry. I just wanted to mention you didn't at all say anything. And these people might show up in Star Trek. I don't know, Todd. I'm sorry, but we didn't mention that <laughs> Mayum Balik is my Mayum Mayum Bialik. By, by, whatever Bialik. her name is. Uh, yeah, she plays one of the little one of one of George uh, Buckflower's kids. One yeah. of the one of the Wallace kids. Blossom. Yeah. Blossom. And, and Big Bang Theory and, and Jeopardy Whoa. now. Yeah. But uh, yeah. <laughs> also, also the dog, his name is Mushroom in real life. Uh, Joe Dante and Steven Spielberg are both claimed as one of the finest actors they've ever worked with. The same dog from Gremlins. <laughs> is it? Yeah. So, uh, wow. you know, Mushroom. Good. Mushroom is a great name for a dog. That yeah. is a great name. <laughs> so just going to give some love to uh, those fine actors. I don't know if Mushroom was ever in Star Trek. Unless it's the like dog that um, Spock is holding. <laughs> I was about to say that too. Like maybe I was it was. Say that's like one of word. one of two famous dogs in Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but no, uh, we mentioned Mayim Bialik as one of the Wallace kids. The only other person in this cast that has appeared in Star Trek is the other Wallace kid, Jandy Swanson, who p- appeared in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, season one, episode 17, When the Bow Breaks. Uh, that was from 1988. She played the role of Katie. And uh, this is of note that this episode was the only episode directed by the late Kim Manners. Uh, some of his credits are Charlie's Angels, Mission Impossible, Baywatch, 21 Jump Street, and here's the connection to our next series, The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., Ah. The Commish, Manus, X-Files, and Supernatural, just to name a few. And that's everybody in Star Trek. One person. Yep. (laughs) One person, but hey, you know, we we had plenty during the James Cameron series, so. That's all right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a lot of the focus on this film is going to be deservedly on the creature effects, guys. There are a couple of other behind-the-scenes folks who I wanted to mention because I think their work is highly important to this film. Uh, the first of those is the film cinematographer, Bojan Bazelli. Uh, his was not a name that rang a bell with me, uh, admittedly. I, it's, a, it's a strange name, so I feel like I would remember it had I, had I come across it before. Uh, but his filmography is pretty impressive. Uh, in recent years, he's worked with directors like Gore Verbinski on The Ring and A Cure for Wellness, uh, David Lowry on Peach Dragon, the, the live-action Peach Dragon remake, oh, yeah. which is a gorgeous-looking movie. Uh, he's worked with Abel Ferreira a couple of times on Body Snatchers and King of New York. Uh, and, but when he made Pumpkinhead, he was relatively unknown. Of course, Stan Winston knew plenty of A-list cinematographers because of his work with directors like James Cameron and John Carpenter. Uh, he could have probably he probably has uh, old Dean Cundy on, on speed say, dial. That son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but Pumpkinhead had a $3 million budget, so they couldn't afford those A-list guys, right? So Winston and his producers, they went about finding a cinematographer the old-fashioned way by watching a bunch of show reels. One of those reels was from Bojan Bazelli, and they were impressed enough with his work to hire him. And I think Bazelli's work on this film gives it a truly otherworldly look. I really like the cinematography on this movie. It looks like a dark fairy tale uh, especially in the scenes like in the witch's house uh, i love the way they're it's lit with these like red hues and everything mm. and also in the pumpkin patch where harley resurrects the demon yeah that light coming out of the woods and the fog and everything i just think it looks really cool mm. uh, the other person who contributes to that look especially in those scenes the witch's house and the pumpkin patch uh really the whole film but those are kind of the standouts is production designer cynthia charrette uh, she, she was also very early in her career at this point, but her work 
really goes a long way towards what makes Pumpkinhead feel very unique as an 80s horror film because Pumpkinhead does not feel like a product of its time. I don't think uh, if, if you compare it to other horror films that are being made around you know the late eighties, mm. uh, this does not feel, this feels like it's on a, on another level than a lot of those movies. Um, they, they, they a hundred percent mentioned uh, a lot that they were going for uh, uh, Winston and, and the other guys, uh, Mario Bava. Like they love those horror movies, oh, yeah. like black Sunday, black Sabbath. Yeah, uh, I see that with the dark fairy tale type stuff they're doing the fog and the just the the look of uh uh the the way the light and they said this was even in the script the way they wanted this thing lit so yeah um but i i think the lighting is such a cool part of this movie and uh they even uh they even talk about like how they even wrote in into the script to have like a psychic disturbance when pumpkin head shows up the way oh, cool. the, the, you know the way the lighting goes crazy yeah. and stuff like that and i like that um strobes and all that um I also heard this on the commentary track. Do you know why cinematographers don't smoke cigarettes? No. Tell me. Because it takes them three hours to light it. <laughs> that's, nice. a good, that's a good cinematography <laughs> joke. <laughs> yeah. Didn't know the, that was out there. Good old fashioned cinematography humor. <laughs> well, this film was shot almost entirely in the Topanga Canyon area, just outside of Los Angeles, despite it being set in Appalachia, I guess. I don't really know. Uh, I think that's where it's supposed to be set. Definitely, it is real weird because it's like in the desert and then it's in a swamp, right? (laughs) Like, where are we? Uh, By all accounts, it was a very smooth shoot. Winston brought the same fun sense of humor and lighthearted spirit to directing as he had to his creature effects work. Everyone really, when you listen to people talk about this movie, everyone recalls their time making. Uh, pumpkin head fondly everyone had a, a great time it was fun it was a it was a lighthearted set despite the dark subject matter it just seemed to be an overall pretty smooth shoot not a lot of hiccups you know so not a lot of fun stories of us uh, talking about we we went through enough of that on on titanic i think to last <laughs> us for a while the, yeah. the big thing you'll hear from like most of the people involved in it is that nobody uh, even some of the newer people that came on, they'll like say that like you didn't really appreciate how great this whole process was until you get onto another movie that's shit later. Yeah, right. And they're like the, that. Everybody was just on the same page. Everybody flowed naturally. Knew what everybody's job was. That everybody describes it as like just fantastic, and uh, and that everybody intended and had set out to make something super special. Uh, that they all really believed in pumpkin head working um uh some of the just uh real quick other little fun facts i thought were uh the cabin that the kids are staying at Mm -hmm. uh that's the cabin from friday the 13th the final chapter uh yeah where Corey feldman's uh that's number four right yeah number four uh they they uh uh alec gillis says uh who, who for some reason gets no love on IMDb for Pumpkinhead. Like, I don't know. He was apparently involved in a lot of this. And, uh, but he said, we were the first to kill Jason right in that living room. And uh, <laughs> that, ca- that same cabin, by the way, also used in the Schwarzenegger movie, Eraser. Uh, oh, it's Friday the 13th, seven. It's in Parks and Rec. It's where they go on their like team building exercise. Nice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really? And, uh, it's at 1801 North Topanga Canyon Boulevard. If anybody's Let's interested, go. it's called Kelly Gulch. <laughs> uh, I try, I, 
tried to look it up. It's it's worth about like three point something million dollars. Oh well, we're not going to buy it, but we'll go visit. <laughs> you <can> go, <laughs> if you want to go uh, try to buy it, you that's can. about how much we make on this podcast. Oh, there's that joke. I love Roughly. that joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, swap location at the Indian dudes around. Uh, they they said uh, they're they're uh, all of that was filmed in the same place where they. Uh, filmed uh, the treehouse stuff for Monster Squad. Oh yeah, so nice. everybody knows that. Just <laughs> another <connect> that. <laughs> another Stan Winston project. Yeah, I guess he's got his spots he likes. Yeah. So there were no stories about uh, Mayim Bialik being a raging bitch on the no. stage. No, she looked like she that? was like seven. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was after the film was completed that the trouble began. Unbeknownst to Winston when he signed on, the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group was in the process of going out of business. By August of 1987, DEG was $16.5 million in debt. This is just a cycle that Dino De Laurentiis goes through. He he starts a production company, it goes bankrupt, and then uh, he sells everything off and buys it, starts a new one. And <laughs> it's just what he does. It's yeah. just what he does. Yeah. What really sucked here is that the, the posters were like already out in the theaters. They said uh, they were said planning. that it was going to come out in in like October of yeah. It was except for at eighty. Uh, they said at eighty seven Halloween release is what they were going. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, of course now all of that's canceled and it'd be right like in limbo for forever. Yeah. So what happens is DEG ends up going bankrupt and they sold the film. Eventually, after a lengthy process, the film just kind of sat there for a while and then eventually got sold to United Artists, MGM United Artists. Uh, United Artists didn't really seem to know what to do with it. Uh, they barely promoted the film at all. Uh, and the movie's box office suffered as a result. You see, the same year, this is 1988 by this time, UA's big horror movie for 1988 was Child's Play. And they put most of their focus on promoting that film. They even showed mm. Pumpkinhead as a double feature with Child's Play in a lot of markets for a while. Uh, so like Child's Play would be the A you know, movie and then Pumpkinhead would be the B movie, which seems like a very strange double feature as well. Yeah. Uh, they don't really, I, I can't imagine watching Pumpkinhead after watching Child's Play. It would it would not feel uh, yeah that doesn't feel right at all yeah, yeah. Um, uh, if you're wondering what uh, UA was doing this whole time apparently they uh, they were they had a real problem with the name when they came in Pumpkinhead like, they did not like Pumpkinhead that is not going to work so uh, they they had uh, a bunch of names that they were going through uh, Vengeance the Demon was one of the many titles that got pretty far that's terrible. Uh, Demon's Revenge was another. That's uh, generic. They said, uh, the writer said they remember sitting next to Stan Winston or like talking to him and him, him being like, well, they're, they're getting further along, kids. He's like, we're down to uh, uh, Vengeance the Demon or the Demon Vengeance. Which do you guys like better? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it was just all ironic since Pumpkinhead was what got the movie made in the first place. Right. And, yeah. That, yeah. that, that and, name is kind of where it started. Yeah. And they couldn't. It's finally, I guess they just, it's, they couldn't settle on anything. They just wanted to get it off their plate, I guess. Just fuck it. Uh, it's Pumpkinhead. <laughs> so, <laughs> but they said the big thing was like, you know, they had good buzz going into the Halloween season. And then it was like, he said that. Yeah. They were in like the, Fangoria and all this stuff, you know, people were aware of it. Like, horror fans were aware of yeah it. yeah and it said that the, the rep it got then was just like oh it must have sucked you know mm -hmm. like they they just dropped right. it well when you've got posters for a movie 
that say it's going to come out in October of 1987, and then it doesn't, and it gets pushed back, and you don't know when it's coming out, that usually indicates that there's something wrong with the movie, that they're having to re-edit it or do reshoots. In this case, it was out of the filmmaker's hands, and it was all bureaucracy. Mm. And this has happened to plenty of other movies when studios or production companies go bankrupt, or there's a merger, you know, like when Disney and Fox merged and things like that. Oh, yeah. But the average Joe Schmo moviegoer doesn't know that. You know, so they just think, oh, man, they this movie, they said it was going to come out in October. Now it's coming out like in March of next year. And uh, it must be really bad. Mm, So it kind of kills your momentum. Yeah, exactly. Well, as a result, the film only made four million dollars at the domestic box office on a three million dollar budget. That's not that three million doesn't doesn't include marketing, which I don't think the marketing budget was very big because they barely marketed it. But there was some marketing budget. Uh, Reviews were pretty mixed as well. A lot of critics applauded the film's creature effects and Henderson's performance, but there wasn't much praise for much else in the movie. But uh, luckily, people have progressed and and, uh, reviews. I'm sure I'm sure that every review of this movie on the Internet now in the year of 2022 is pretty positive. Yeah, it's it's weird. Like you you look online and you can't uh, find any reviews below five stars. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, I gotta give it that. No, I'm just kidding. There's plenty of people that need a nap. <laughs> For what it's worth, before I go into somebody needs a nap, I did see. Uh, I meant to mention this earlier, but apparently it did release for a second overseas finally as Vengeance the Demon. Oh, did it? And oh. yeah, and there's a trading card company called Fright Flicks from the yeah. 80s that put yeah, out this I, car. Yeah. I've got a few of those. <laughs> yeah, it says if you find the pumpkin head ones, I mean, that there there are some released that that have that on there. Really? Then it's the demon with with old pumpkin head in the nice. car. Nice. Um, but anyway, let's uh let's start here with the PR guy. It's uh, he gave it one out of 5 stars here. Um it says a uh, uh, waste of time, worth a zero. That's the subject here. Granted, I'm a horror flick fanatic, but Pumpkinhead is no horror flick. It's frivolous, boring, mindless, junk-filled, silly, and stupid. Concoction of guavo, manure, stale dog food, and buzzless warm beer all brewed into one totally useless sick cinema sampler suited for oblivion. And that's the best thing I can say about it. Case closed. Carve this pumpkin till death do you part. A total zero. The box, you ask? I've removed it from my collection. Remember, one bad apple. I'm not even sure what the last. What does that even mean? What the box? Yeah. What, yeah. That mean? <laughs> what box? Yeah. Like the like that the DVD came in or something? I, I suppose <laughs> so. that's what he means. I don't know. <laughs> uh, this person said, uh, "One out of five. Uh, this movie is really old looking." That's the whole review. <laughs> That's the review. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, Aprino, Aprino, Apino Ape. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. gives it uh, one star. My number one reference when I tell someone who the worst horror movie monster is. I looked this movie up so I could applaud all the uh, applaud all the others who watched it and thought the same as myself. Then I saw a three star average. Uh, this crappy movie is some of the worst mess I've ever seen. There are some bad horror movies out there, but Pumpkinhead takes the cake. A cult following? 
yeah, you'd have to be in a cult to think that this movie was good. You could never really... <laughs> it got me too. That's good. Uh, you could never really see the creature because the filmmakers made sure to put it in mostly dim scenes. Why? So you couldn't see how terrible the pumpkin head costume is. I know I saw wires. I can't believe there are sequels. Ooh, I really hate this movie. LOL. I think this is the worst movie monster of all time. Yeah. Like more, more so than like the, like the trolls from troll two. Mm. Like, like, <laughs> like there's a lot more bad movie monsters that, that would rank above this one. I didn't even read all of uh, Jesse Gehrig's review here because I just started off. And like in the first two lines, I was like, well, I'm using this, whatever it says from here. And it's from uh, May of last year. One star. This movie is about pumpkins because pumpkins are seasonal. Pumpkin Man is a movie about a group of teenagers played by actors well into their 20s and 30s. These middle-aged young people on dirt bikes, man, and they are tearing around on those dirt bikes, man, riding up hills and over smaller hills, dirt bikes. Then some stuff happens, and the characters all have different reactions to the stuff that happens. Next thing I know, the movie is over and several members of the G.I. Joe team are there to talk about what the moral of the story was or they tell me how to deal with a nosebleed. I don't know. The G.I. Joes are kind of pushy, so I usually zone them out. <laughs> what are you talking about? What are, <laughs> I don't know. That guy, was, a, that guy was stoned when he watched the movie and when he wrote that review. Yes. Yeah, probably. His review for Pumpkin Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Justin, when you put out the card for this, please put pumpkin man, but cross out man and put and like a right head next to it. It old pumpkin man. Here is Grant from Savages. One star. If I had a dollar for every time a classic was actually just a dog shit film with good lighting, I could produce a movie. Suits fine, but just if a xenomorph fucked a pumpkin, nothing revolutionary. <laughs> Jude gives it one star and says, more like Blumpkin Head. (laughs) 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 And then Drew says, one star, more like Pumpkin Bed, because this movie will put you to sleep. Wow. (laughs) So clever. Yeah, that's good. So clever. Yeah. Uh, Here's Jordan (laughs) with the final review for today saying, one star, I well and truly can fucking not understand how this is a cult classic. Too self-serious to laugh at, too campy to give any legit scares, no tension, and a really unimpressive score contribute to this. And none of the characters are likable, so you don't mind seeing them slaughtered by the Kmart xenomorph. Stay away. Well, Todd, I know that, uh, well, first of all, Gary, I know that you are a big fan of this movie. So we'll get to your thoughts on it in a second. But Todd, this was your first viewing of Pumpkinhead, right? It was, yes. So I want to hear Todd's take, like, because we didn't do a preview to this really in our last bonus episode, because we just announced it and figured out what we were going to watch in that last bonus episode. So we didn't really uh, get to talk about it beforehand. But uh, what did you think on your first time viewing a Pumpkinhead? I, you know, it's, it was, it struck me as just kind of, it's, it's just a fun horror movie. It's not, they're not trying to, you know, make the next big shocking culture altering thing. They're just, they're making a fun movie for audiences. It, it, I think it comes into pop into the popcorn category 
I can see some people, you heard some people um, comparing Pumpkinhead, the creature, to the xenomorph. I, I'll admit, like, when I first saw it on screen, I was just like, eh, it looks a lot like the xenomorph. But understandable, you know, with, you know, uh, Stan's company kind of behind it. Yeah, there might be some similarities there. Um, but like I said, Lance, uh, Lance Hendrickson just swinging for the fences and it was just it was just fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Gary, why do you like this movie so much? I mean, you, did you watch this like when you were a kid? I know me and you both have a big background as like like we watch a lot of horror movies when we were kids, especially like middle school, high school age. Is this one of those that you discovered back then? Yeah, yeah, definitely. This is one I've watched. Uh, yeah, this is like a kid. video store thing for me. Like, I, I just saw it on the shelf of the video store. Pumpkinhead, that sounds cool. Had a picture of like a claw coming down and uh, it caught my attention. So that's where I first saw it. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I just, uh, I think the movie is is better than it should be. Like, it's, it's. I think Todd's right that they're not sweet. Like, they're not, uh, they're not setting out to make like some kind of piece of classic cinema like they're, you know, like I, I don't know. They're they're making a, a monster movie. That's exactly. They're what making they're a monster doing. movie that has a little bit. It does have something to say. Well, uh, oh, for sure. Of, yeah. I just mean, I don't think that they're they're trying to reach beyond like what their area is here. Like, yeah, they're know, they're not rewriting the genre or yeah. anything. Yeah, and right. um, and and I say that to say that I think they they overachieve with that. Like mm -hmm. they, they make like you got Stan Winston and obviously you expect the creature to look cool. I think Pumpkinhead is a cool fucking creature. Yeah. And uh, I get the Xenomorph comparisons. It makes sense. But also I think Pumpkinhead's kind of distinct from a Xenomorph. Uh, I think so too. I think, the, yeah. I think those, uh, those comparisons come just from the basic shape of the body and yeah. the way it moves, you know, but other than that, that's, that's kind of where the similarities end. But yeah. anytime you have a guy in a suit, they're going to be somewhat shaped the same you know mm -hmm. yeah and i think especially for a time like it, the more i watch it now uh knowing the stuff i know or having seen all the movies i've seen i really appreciate that when you're talking about a period which is the golden age of horror of like the 80s to, and like 80 to 90 um when you got a movie like this that's coming like right off of it's like slashers dying off and everything and everything's all about excess and craziness it's cool to see like especially a guy like stan winston who who can do so much and know so much about how to make effects mm -hmm. and chooses to say like but how can we like make you know we've only got so much of a budget like let's pull back like let's leave a lot to the imagination let's yeah. play with this like it's mm -hmm. you know the people complaining about pumpkinhead not showing up really for forever i mean that's part of the intrigue to me like it's yeah. like it's uh it's fun it's uh, it doesn't overuse pumpkinhead and when it does show pumpkinhead you you get glimpses of it when you need to and then it's more of you know and even then at first it builds to it it shows you like parts yeah. of him you know or he's like briefly one of my fa my favorite I felt like the people who complain about that are the same ones who are going to complain about the shark not showing up early enough in jaws right yeah, exactly. i was actually just thinking about that yeah <laughs> yeah it's like you get just enough of him to know yeah. that he's something crazy and right. you don't know and you get to let your imagination have fun with it which is something a guy like stan winston wouldn't have to do but chooses to do that he understands the value of that kind of thing it's not overblown and it's not um I don't know. I just think it's well cast, directed, planned, acted. 
like you, you get to see, I don't know, you, you get to see like a guy like Stan Winston, who we've talked about a little bit in this one, use all of the shit that he knows. And right, yeah. And it's, I, I just really appreciate it, uh, like how dramatically effective it is. Mm. And then also just effective it is as a monster movie. And, um, and I don't know. It's just like, and there, there's fun things you could pick apart. Dude, one of the best parts this time was watching the commentary track because you get to hear uh, what's his face in the pumpkin head suit. He points out every time they fucked up. Like, <laughs> legitimately, there's a time where, like, uh, pumpkin, like the girl shoots Lance Hendrickson and pumpkin head falls face first on the ground and ends up grabbing the dude's foot. Yeah. And standing up with him hanging upside down. He points it out that, like, you literally, if you look quick enough, it pans up and Pumpkinhead's wearing like blue Nike sneakers. But it's just, yeah, there's another moment he talks about where Pumpkinhead, where they were doing the wire thing, but they only, they didn't have like a huge harness. They, it was like one wire. So he, Pumpkinhead's coming down this hill. He's like backlit. You see his full body coming down and he's kind of walking a little bit crooked. Uh, mm. Tom Woodruff describes it as his like John Wayne walk where he's kind of walking <laughs> with that, like one shoulder. And it wasn't like, on that wasn't like a performance decision he made. It was because of the way the, the, the harness was attached to him that he just kind of like got stuck in that position going down the hill. And <laughs> when they were wearing that harness, he, he's got like a wire mesh thing underneath the suit, but they didn't have any padding on it because it would have made the suit look too bulky. So mm. this stuff's just like digging into him. Oh, uh. There's another goof up that the, the kid who plays Bunt, uh, the 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 Wallace kid who shows them where the witch is, you know, mm. uh, where Pumpkinhead burst into like the closet he's hiding in, and he said he they got the there it's like three four in the morning they're shooting doing night shoots and the whole crew Stan everybody just got the giggles during that scene including Tom Woodruff who's in the Pumpkinhead suit <laughs> and he said they could not get a take where they were not like giggling. Uh, and if you watch the scene close enough, you can see like they, they, they obviously they dubbed over the sound and stuff. So you hear pumpkin head kind of roar when it comes in. But if you look at bunt, he is, he is like laughing his ass off during that scene. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so, I, so there's like, you can tell they're just having a good time making this yeah. movie. Um, another one, uh, just as we're talking about him, uh, is in the church scene. Like when it first, like when he first steps in the doorway, he's like, I think he's here now. And like, and it pans and they do such a good job, by the way, of like, again, like, you know, just like on that church scene, they're shooting like outside of the church, like through the, the boards and stuff. So it's mm -hmm. kind of cool. But if you look hard enough, like when pumpkin head standing in the doorway, he's definitely standing on apple cart or apple boxes. Yeah. To make himself taller. And uh, so like, I love that stuff, but, but at the same time, that scene, by the way, uh, with that backlighting and I, I mentioned the thing and stuff like that and the guy in the pumpkin head suit I just forgot his name but when he's Tom Woodruff yeah, yeah Woodruff when he's walking uh, watch his movements the next time you see it and he's going for he said straight up Ray uh, Harryhausen like mm. he's trying to move a little like a Harryhausen thing. like he's a <laughs> like he's uh stop motion yeah like yeah. he's stop motion just to, <laughs> just as a callback to like those kind of monster movies he's trying to That's harness fun. that and uh and the person who got that who saw like a screener like stop by and watch some of it uh on the dailies with uh winston it said that's fucking cool uh that guy was james cameron who yeah when they when they did their when they did their initial screening at the studio 
uh, where they were screening the movie for kind of for, for everyone for the first time to see the, the, the edited product. Uh, Winston invited James Cameron to that screening. He kind of wanted to show off his creation to his, his friend who was a you know, acclaimed director at this point, just kind of like, look what I did. It kind of oh, thing. They, they yeah. said uh, Gillis and them said they were sitting in, in the seats, like watching it. And the part where it pans back or like uh, Pumpkinhead turns around and it's got Hendrickson's face yeah. on it. They said the row in front of them, they were, somebody goes, fucking cool. It is and fucking cool. Up, and they looked <laughs> up and it was Dan O'Bannon. Nice. Uh, that, I love that. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Uh, but uh, there's just like lots of lots of cool little things like that. Like I just love like how into it everybody was. And there's yeah. a moral. There's like a simple story in a world where at the time, especially in the 80s, where it could have been a slasher, it could have been mm-hmm. overblown with gore. Uh, it could have been about the sex crazed teenagers like boning in the cabin. And, you know, I'm right. not against that. But instead, this is about a middle-aged dad whose son dies, and right. he, he's it becomes like this weird, spooky fairy tale that, uh, as weird as it is, even could be like a father-son horror movie, like the first horror movie you showed to your kid, almost mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in a way. And uh, I don't know, I just love it. I just think it's 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 perfectly done for what it's supposed to be. Yeah, I, I don't think Pumpkinhead is like this untouchable classic. You know, uh, I, I think I love I love this movie. Uh, it, it did eventually gain a cult following once it was released on video, and I think it deserves its status as a cult classic. It would deserve its status as a cult classic if only because it's the directorial debut of one of the greatest special effects artists in the history of movies. Mm. But also because I think that concept, that demon or of revenge, is a really great concept. It's a really unique concept, and the creature itself is, of course, an incredible piece of art. Uh, I'm not. I think, a, I'm not opposed to them rebooting the whole thing entirely. Yeah. Just, uh, I, I do think the design is. You should stick with that. Yeah, yeah, but I, I just think this movie would be worth watching, even if all it had going for it was, hey, this is Stan Winston's directorial debut. Hey, it's got a really cool Stan Winston creature. But luckily, there's a lot of other good stuff here as well, in addition to just those things. Like I, I we've we've mentioned it a couple of times, but I love this like dark, grim fairy tale ver- like feel of the movie you know it's like a southern gothic fairy tale uh even if it does kind of treat southern people with a little bit of disdain like we all live in shanties with no phone or running just water. real dirty just was all covered in dirt all the time <laughs> but, but the, i think that but i think that you, it, you say that but then don't pretend like we don't know people exactly oh, yeah, like yeah. This. yeah. <laughs> they're around they're all in greer they're out <laughs> Wait a minute, my address is in Greer. <laughs> my dad lives in Greer. <laughs> uh, but I think that they're they are almost characters, even though they're not played that way by like Lance Hendrickson and, and Buck Flower. But I think the reason that they're sort of a almost like a comic book version of what a southern person is supposed to look like. I think mm-hmm. that's because this film has the look and the feel of an old EC comics story oh very like it very yeah. much feels like an old ec comic story you've got all these reds and oranges deep blue blacks lots of fog you know the kind of stuff you would see in one of those old vault of horror stories uh you've got blood rituals performed by candlelight creepy old hags this is like classic horror comics territory. i was gonna say it, it feels like the only the only setting where this kind of story works like it yeah it, it really feels mm-hmm. like it, it it suits this because uh, even the kids 
that show up uh, not to, to cut you off of this whole thing but i was even noticing with the kids that show up their their clothing is not even that crazy like you you can tell it's the 80s but it's like the the worst fashion faux pas is probably like the kids wearing a headband at one point but if you right. watch some early episode <laughs> video of some of our stuff i was wearing headbands <laughs> <laughs> but i i think that i think winston made the right call in making this sort of a a heightened reality mm. you know a little bit that that comic book pulp because this is very much pulp territory oh, you yeah. know uh and and like a lot of those ec comics Pumpkinhead is kind of a cautionary tale you know the idea that vengeance dooms not just the victim but the one doling out the punishment in this dig, case dig two Harley. graves dig right. two graves exactly yeah. and that's the kind of stuff you would see in those old ec comics and the, the concept of that revenge demon kind of links Pumpkinhead back to uh, like folk tales about deals with the devil, you know, Faust and things like that. None of which ever went well for the one making the deal, you know, mm -hmm. just as things don't go particularly well for Ed Harley at the end of the movie. Well, you mentioned Faust. Faust is 100% one of the things they talk about on top of the Lovecraft and the, yeah. the you know, the other yeah, stuff. They, like, they mentioned Faust like a hundred times in that commentary yeah. track. They, they, Definitely knew what they were doing there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and speaking of Ed Harley, um, you know, we've talked about Lance Hendrickson. We've praised him, but I don't think he's ever been better than he is here. Uh, he, he plays it. He gets a little hokey towards the end when he's like pleading with the witch to stop Pumpkinhead. Yeah. Uh, his Southern accent's a little over the top, but overall, he's pretty incredible, especially I, I love those early scenes where he's interacting with his son. You really like feel the bond with them, you mm -hmm. know, like the, the scene where he's washing his son's hands, that was ad-libbed by Lance Hendrickson. Like oh, wow. he, like that was a story from his own life with his own grandmother, where he talks about her washing his hands. Like Lance Hendrickson uh, ad-libbed that on the, on the day of the shoot. Uh, but I think that, that, you know, you have to really build that relationship between him and his son, because his son's not going to be around for the whole movie. And that's what drives the plot. So it makes it that much more heartbreaking when the kid dies mm -hmm. uh and then that, that scene where you know he pulls up and he sees his son lying in the field like that is a hell of a performance for a low budget horror movie like he yeah. is like you like you said todd he is not dialing it in no uh, or he's not phoning it in like he right. is he is there uh he, he is treating this like it's the biggest movie ever made uh and then later like he um the look that he gives the kid a scratch that's still there the kid later describes it as like he looks like he wanted to kill me the look on Hendrickson's face when he jerks his head around and looks at them, oh, like God. he's shooting daggers with his Woo! eyes. Man. Like, and the score just compliments <laughs> yeah. it perfectly. Yeah, Like you really believe that he would kill that guy if his kid's life wasn't his number one priority. Right. And then his kid lives for a few more minutes, which makes his death all the more heartbreaking because there's oh. like a chance that he's going to make it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that makes you understand why he makes his deal with the devil. But even, even then too, don't forget the kid like, uh, he sees the, you know, the spirit of his kid coming back for just that one moment in the mm -hmm. truck too, where it's just like, what are you doing? Yeah. And uh, just where he's like, his conscious is but it, uh -huh. Lance Hendrickson approached this is like, this may be my only starring role ever. Like you, you could tell, like, he's like, this yeah. is my movie now. This and I love it. Like, I, I, I think he, he is all in on making yeah. this work. And, and I, all, I respect all, that. Yeah, and that that lead up, that whole thing is very important to the film. It it 
adds more gravitas to the film. Uh, I do understand some people's complaints that it, it takes a little bit too long before Pumpkinhead starts his rampage. I don't necessarily disagree with that. Uh, I do like all that stuff. I I, uh, I think once Pumpkinhead, I, the reason that I think that he takes a little bit too long to start on his rampage is because once Pumpkinhead starts killing, Ed Harley seems to regret what he's done almost immediately. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I think the film could have been a little bit stronger if he had gradually come to that conclusion. You know, like if Pumpkinhead had started killing earlier and there was a progression of Ed Harley realizing, oh, fuck, what have I unleashed? You know, yeah. what have I done? Instead of kind of immediately after the killing begins, like as soon as like Pumpkinhead makes his first kill and then within five minutes of screen time, Ed Harley's like, ah, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about also like he, he could have killed, you know, in this one, I, this did cross my mind. It's like the last person Pumpkinhead actually kills is the person who killed the kid, you yeah. know? And it's like, mm. I don't know. I don't know if that's right. Or if, if you go with like, he gets rid of that person, but then he keeps coming because yeah. he's killing this whole group and he's then it, all of them you know and then like ed harley's like wait fuck <laughs> like hold i on. mean but joel is the one that you kind of hate the most they make you hate him the most so he's the one that you get the most satisfaction out of Pumpkinhead killing yeah. you're kind of on Pumpkinhead's side speaking there, you of know. yeah again i i i said this before a little bit but some of my favorite shit in this last time watching it was just i he's so I don't know. Pumpkinhead has so much life to him about how he's going about this. Like he's mm -hmm. enjoying it. You don't just, it's not just that when you call Pumpkinhead, he's killing them. He's tormenting them. Yeah. Like, and, mm -hmm. and it didn't really hit me until watching it this last time that like, just like when they're like in the cabin discussing things, they've seen uh, the kid Joel die or whatever. And they're like all freaked out the cabin. And there's a moment where the lightning flashes. You can see like, they're they're like arguing about what to do, and Pumpkinhead just like strolls by, just the, by, the, window. by the window. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it honestly, it honestly made me think of um, Jurassic Park. That scene, it, it felt yeah. like it felt like a raptor walking by, like mm -hmm. a, a a predator walking by. You know, there's uh, a scene with the the girl. Uh, uh, well, first, sorry, I'm going crazy now. Um, <laughs> first, they do mention Jurassic Park in in the commentary as well. They're like talking about that. That's a Winston talked a little bit about that uh, later on that they were saying he, you know, when he was thinking about this, he's like, we were thinking about how to shoot pumpkin head. He was like, with like, it's like you either get Jurassic park or you get a horror movie. And he's mm -hmm. like, and there's times in like Jurassic park. He's like, you want to show what you can do. And there's awe. And it's like outside in the environment, you can see the dinosaurs. He's like, but, we're dealing mostly with fear and he's like, so that's up close and too close to really ever understand what you're, what you're seeing. I don't know. It, it was just an interesting comparison. I never yeah. thought about before, yeah, but, was but he, it was a, from like a later interview or something that Winston mentioned that, but um, Pumpkinhead, like uh, there's the scene, another great line from it that wouldn't work anywhere else is where like the girls like go in to get a knife or something. <laughs> and the one girl's like, Oh, the only person that can help us now is God. And she's <laughs> like, grabs the knife and is like, well, just in case God doesn't show up. <laughs> That's good. That's but good. Uh, like, I love oh. that line. But then later, like they're huddled up at the corner and she looks up and the knife is sitting up on the counter. And it's like, you think she's looking at the knife, but then it pans up further. And what she's really looking at is pumpkin head has her friend's head like outside the window yeah, yeah. Like just <laughs> bouncing it up and down yeah and it's like it's 
I don't know. I'm just like, I never, I don't, it took me forever to get that. That I'm just like, he's fucking with them. Yeah. Like, he, he is just like waving your friend's head. Yeah. It's yeah. like what Michael Myers does. The friend who's talking about God, like she ends up getting a cross carved into her face. Yeah. <laughs> and this could have definitely been structured more like a slasher movie. Like if they had started the killings earlier, you know, pumpkin head taking out the kids one by one with Ed eventually realizing the magnitude of what he's unleashed. Uh, they, they, they were kind of very adamant about not making this a slasher movie though. Uh, but once Ed realizes it, it does, it does set up a really fun third act. Ed, Ed kind of flip flops into becoming the protector of the people that he wanted to kill to a point where he sacrifices himself in order to save those that are still alive you know mm -hmm. uh, and it, it, i think it helps that the film treats its characters like real people which a lot of horror movies of this time don't really do even side characters like like buck flowers character or, or the kids you know the the, the um buck flowers kids the wallace kids mm -hmm. uh and uh the the son bunt who shows ed harley where to find the witch they're not treated like just plot devices they're treated like actual people like you feel like this world that Pumpkinhead takes place in this rural area has mm -hmm. a life of its own and we're just seeing this this chapter of it you know by the way stan winston's kids were also part of those the those were people. they yeah <laughs> like they were uh what i think one of his daughters was uh guiding the hogs when he nice. like pulls into the area and yeah like he, he put his kids as some of those uh hicks nice i mean even if you we're, we're giving a lot of praise to this movie and i know a lot of not everyone's going to agree with that uh, but even if you do disagree with the the praise we're giving the film itself you can't deny how fucking cool the monster is i know some of the people in your reviews you read gary were talking shit about the monster but this 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 monster is an incredible creation i think uh it is really cool i love i i, I mentioned it before but i love that little grin that he gets when he makes a kill like he's enjoying yeah. it you know yeah. he is enjoying it and winston also wisely doesn't show him too much so he never loses his power to his ability to be scary mm -hmm. so when you do see him he is downright frightening uh, and he's fill he's filmed like almost a mythological being, like the shot yeah. of him walking through the the crumbling church. You know, like he's shot like he is an otherworldly being. Mm -hmm. uh, the design is super gnarly, like he looks like a diseased organ. I, this, I think, I think Pumpkinhead is one of the last great practical movie monsters that was created before CGI started taking center stage. That's yeah, fair. yeah. They they shoot it too the way they shoot it with like a lot of up angles like mm -hmm. at it just makes it feel huge and like yeah. it just uh I don't know I I just think it, it does work really really well it's unfair to say that the monster's back because I, I think that monster is amazing I love the part too by the way just because now we're just talking about I'm thinking of all these things in the tree like where it carries that one girl up yeah the tree. oh yeah, yeah it's good <laughs> just such a good shot tree. yeah just drops so her and she's like on the rock at the end i'm like fuck man yeah. this is wild <laughs> it like, is he is brutal yeah. i think a lot of what makes the monster work is tom woodruff's performance uh tom woodruff jr his, his like his movements are incredible uh we, we haven't talked about woodruff a lot on this episode i mean a little bit during you know when we were talking about the behind the scenes stuff but uh, not in a lot of detail, but I, I think that he, so Tom Woodruff is an Oscar winning special effects supervisor. Uh, his first credit as a special effects supervisor was on the Terminator. Uh, he was an integral part of Winston's stable over the years, and he deserves a lot of credit as a, as a special effects supervisor, but also a lot of credit as a creature performer as well. This is not his only time you know, in the suit. In addition to Pumpkinhead, he played the Gill Man in the Monster Squad. He played a Graboid in Tremors. He plays a Xenomorph in Alien 3. Uh, 
Dang. Uh, he played, he's the lead Xenomorph, I think, is his his credit. And he played Goro in the 1995 Mortal Kombat movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey. <laughs> uh, so he's he's got a pretty good resume on that side of things as well. So I want to give a little shout out to him. Uh, it, it's kind of a shame that Pumpkinhead was screwed upon release because of De Laurentiis' company going out of business, uh, because of not getting marketed properly. properly uh, because I think that the character deserves a legit franchise instead mm. of the straight to video and straight to sci-fi franchise that it, that it became mm. uh, like it, it deserved a legitimate theatrical run. I think along with all the other great movie monsters, I think it could have, it got bigger had it had that uh, yeah. to, to, to your thing that you were just talking about though. Uh, they described that effects process. as like super, uh, they, they call it incestuous uh, uh, just so people realize though uh the um uh, who had the baby version of Pumpkinhead? I was trying to remember. Uh, uh, I can't remember. Alec Gillis, maybe I can't remember who. Yeah, maybe it was Alec Gillis. Uh, that feels right because I got a lot of quotes from him. But he was saying that like um, <clears throat> Shane Mahan had the witch. He's like, I had the baby. Alec sculpted the adult version of the head. Or no, so so it wasn't him. He's like, we all worked on the body and the face. John Rosengrant did the final version with the face. Richard Landon did animatronics, and he and I was just. Typing this out as I was listening to the commentary because he said Howard Berger, Greg Nicotero, Bob Kurtzman, they were all actually there with us. Oh, wow. And he said that we were all working on this stuff. And he said, uh, years later, we started our company. We did trimmers. Uh, we rented space from K&B to start our stuff. They just gave us space to do trimmers because we were all buddies. And uh, they said later they did a movie, uh, Intruder, and uh, like they would help each other out just be like just give us some credit at the end you know nice. <laughs> and uh they would just like all work with each other just like they all knew each other they all like would just show up on set and be like what do you need help with and it's one thing that i notice a lot about especially in special effects around <laughs> this time so these guys they all worked together at some point then they go off and they start their own thing but then they help each other out like stan winston coming in to help rob botine on the thing you know like they're they're all supporting each other it's like a it's a it's like a cool little community it feels mm, like mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm, Tom yeah. Savini, you know, hired uh, Greg Nicotero. Nicotero goes and starts his own company. And it's, it's, I don't know. It's really, I really like that aspect of it. Well, it's odd, you know, in a, in an industry that's so competitive to find this camaraderie yeah. and community. Yeah. It's really cool. So of course it is time for the segment we do on every episode, further viewing. What do you pair with Pumpkinhead, if we're doing a double feature, Pumpkinhead, what what goes well with it? Todd, I'll let you start. Uh, honestly, uh, you know, I had a... Don't give us a bullshit answer like you did on Avatar. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually have a real one this time. Uh, so uh, for this one, you know, in looking at the somewhat... Because the film does have something to say, but, you know, at face value, it's kind of this... Uh, it's a little. It's a little campy. Uh, you've got the trope of the kids and cabin in the woods. You've got, um, uh, you know, some uh, swinging for the fences uh, from your main character. So uh, I think those are all found in Evil Dead 1981. So uh, there's never another. Seen it. Yeah. Oh, you never seen it? Uh, no. It's decent. <laughs> Unfamiliar. I check it out. <laughs> we should we should work something out where we have to watch that. So yeah, yeah, we should. Yeah, we should. yeah. We'll, we'll talk about it. <laughs> sure. How about you, Gary? 
you know, there, the weird thing is, is with, you know, if you want to talk about the creature stuff, there's the obvious stuff we've already mentioned like a hundred times. Um, I would say that the movie I will give is the one I always associate with it in my brain for some reason. I think it's just because of being a kid. I watched both these movies. And aside from, again, the slashers that were all about, and again, this is no complaining, titties and uh, teen sex in a cabin in the woods and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Um I always watched this movie and thought of it as like a weird, spooky fairy tale, just like the movie The Gate. Uh, Ah, uh, I really loved that movie when I was growing up, too. And it feels for some reason similar to me, like just uh, accidentally releasing some kind of demon thing. Yeah, I I (laughs) can definitely uh, see that. And regretting it. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Stephen Dorff or a young Stephen Dorff. Yeah. Movie, I think. Uh, So I got to go with Pet Cemetery. That makes uh, sense because Pet Cemetery thematically is like, uh, first of all, it's about the way someone deals with grief, you know, like the death of a child and how mm-hmm. they deal with it and what they're willing to do to make it right. In the case of Pet Cemetery, it's bringing the kid back. In the case of Pumpkinhead, it's getting revenge on the people who took your kid away from you uh, and then regretting that decision because of everything that it brings along with it. So I think Pet Cemetery, the original, I should specify, Pet Cemetery, the Mary Lambert version, uh, would be a great double feature with this. If you want to be real fucking depressed, if you don't have, if you if you have kids, maybe that's not your best special feature. If you just favorite. want a couple of back-to-back movies about your kids dying, this is the way to go. <laughs> that might not be your favorite double feature if you have kids, but I think thematically they work really well together. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with the gate. It was like literally like the year before, and uh, the kids are the heroes. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. not so not dead. <laughs> maybe you should watch it after Pumpkinhead. And then, <laughs> all right, you're like we lost our kid. Maybe throw in the Monster Squad or something. Yeah, and, Monster uh, Squad would be a good one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just for something fun, some some more fun Stan Winston work that's a little less uh, heavy. Let's right. say. Despite the poor box office performance of Pumpkinhead, the film ended up doing much better on home video, where it finally found an audience and it became a cult favorite. Uh, It was so popular on video, in fact, that the rights to the film and its characters were eventually purchased by a third party. Uh, The Motion Picture Corporation of America is the name of the company that bought the rights to it. Yeah. (laughs) A really creative name there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was the only way that the producers ended up making any money because the movie didn't make any money in the box office that selling off the rights was the only way to kind of make a profit on this. Uh, and a straight-to-video sequel called Pumpkinhead to Blood Wings was released in 1994, directed by Jeff Burr, who was known for uh, The Stepfather 2, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, and Puppet Master 4 and 5. <laughs> <laughs> And now, Gary, you've seen Blood Wings. I've seen Blood Wings, yeah, and and I've recently watched Pumpkin or Puppet Master uh, four and five. Pup, yeah, I'm, Pumpkin I'm, Master. I'm working on. I'm working my way through Pump through Puppet Master, and four is my next one to watch, actually. Uh, but what do you do? You remember Blood Wings? I don't know how long it's been since you saw it, but I I watched it this week. I watched it a couple days ago, and it's very much a direct to video 1994 horror movie. I was gonna say that's the thing I remember about watching it the last time is that it very much feels like that. It feels exactly like something you would have seen on the Sci Fi Channel at the time yeah. or something. It's it's got so so Lil Moon Fry is that her name who played Punky Brewster? She's yeah. in it. Uh, Lania Quigley is in it very briefly just to show some tit and, and get scared, uh, which, you know, is what most people hired her for, I guess, at the, t- at the time. And it stars as, as the um, 
the sheriff in the town. It stars Andrew Robinson. Andrew Robinson played Larry in Hellraiser. I recently watched, uh, I'm, I'm working my way through the child's play movies for, uh, we've started our Halloween uh, you know, watching already. So I've been watching all the child's play movies. He's in part three, which is the one set in the, the uh, military school. He's the uh, sergeant who is in charge of shaving the kid, the kid's head uh, and enjoying it far too much. Uh, but he's also, we should mention Garrick in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but uh, yeah, so he he starts in Pumpkinhead 2. It's Pumpkinhead 2 is not, it's, it's I, I would not seek it out. Do not, don't, you know, I, I, I sought it out. I had to rent it. I had to pay $4 <laughs> to rent it. Uh, like I was going to Blockbuster or something. But uh, I, I don't think it's stuff, it's not an integral entry in the Pumpkinhead franchise. In fact, I would say the only Pumpkinhead movie you really need to watch is the first one uh, yeah. because after Pumpkinhead 2 uh, which is again it was 1994 there were two additional sequels produced called Pumpkinhead Ashes to Ashes and Pumpkinhead Blood Feud which were filmed in Romania in 2006 and they were released as sci-fi original movies in October 2006 and February 2007 respectively uh, they did see the return of Lance Hendrickson as Ed Harley I'm interested in that. Like, well, what? he's so he's kind of a ghost. Uh, he's he's like a he's kind of a ghost who he's he's not able to move on because he's he's cursed by what he did by unleashing Pumpkinhead. Uh-huh. Uh, but he's also like the vessel for Pumpkinhead's return. So the thing about Pumpkinhead too is that it kind of ignores the mythology of the first film. Pumpkinhead and, and Pumpkinhead two is he has a backstory where he was like this deformed kid who were killed by some bullies in the fifties. And I was actually going to shit on that. It's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a, it's a terrible rewriting <laughs> of the pumpkin head character, but the first, I, 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 yeah. So like the first one does imply because, you know, you see the witch uh, carry the body up yeah. to the, and bury it again. And it has the necklace on that the kid gave us. So it's obviously Harley. Right, that's getting buried. So it does imply that he'll come back. Well, he, well, he does, head. but that's in that's in Pumpkinhead, that's in three and four. Part two ignores that and makes him this kid who got bullied in the fifties, uh, who had like a weird deformity on his head. Uh, so it's a it's a really stupid rewriting of of the backstory of Pumpkinhead. But mm. Pumpkinhead three, they use Ed Harley's body as like the vessel to bring him back. Uh, it's a very bad movie. It's a very bad movie. The only thing it really has going for it is that the pumpkin head uh, costume looks better than it did in part two. Uh, not nearly as good as in the original. And Doug Bradley is the villain. He plays a like small town doctor slash organ harvester. Huh. <laughs> so, so it's got, it's got pinhead versus pumpkin head and it. You've got that going now for that, it. that I would like to see. Um, <laughs> And then Pumpkinhead Blood Feud, the fourth one, is basically a Romeo and Juliet type story. Oh, God. These, these two people from, <laughs> they're, in, they're in two separate families, you know, boy and a girl, uh, forbidden love. Here's the twist, though. The two separate families, Hatfields and McCoys. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> like legit Hatfields and they're the hat. They're the Hatfields and the McCoys. She's okay. a McCoy. He's a Hatfield or maybe vice versa. I don't remember. And one member from one family kills one of the daughters from the other family. They unleash Pumpkinhead to get revenge and all this stuff. And it is 
terrible. <laughs> they they both very much feel like a 2006 sci-fi original movie. Yeah, <laughs> it's so weird. Like sometimes I want to like just praise sci-fi and say God bless you for doing what you do. I actually I know it's so popular. This is probably a whole other uh show, but uh I'm okay with Sharknado, but then it's just like things get out of hand. Yeah, and... yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> to a certain point. I mean, these movies are you know, if you want to watch them, the third one is actually very hard to find. Ashes to Ashes, like the DVD is going for like ninety nine dollars on Amazon. Jeez. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure that it's ever sold for yeah, ninety nine dollars. Right. Um, well, pro tip: I found it on YouTube in full with Indonesian <laughs> subtitles. So that's how. Well, I watch hey, it. there you go. <laughs> Remind me, and I'll see if I can get it. We're gonna value. release the Curse of the Fly on yeah. uh, <laughs> on, on our uh, YouTube. So if, if nobody's watching, I'm I'm not opposed for us uploading it. <laughs> Uh, Pumpkinhead 4 Blood Feud is on Tubi as of this recording. So that one's very easy to find. Why 3 is hard to find and 4 is not when they were both produced for sci-fi at the same time for the same company. I don't know, but that's that's the way it is. They forgot. There was also talk of a Pumpkinhead reboot a few years ago, but as far as I know, nothing ever came of it. Although I do, I'm not opposed to a reboot or like a legacy sequel for Pumpkinhead. I'd almost rather see a legacy sequel, one of those like Halloween 2018 that ignores all the other sequels. And it's just a, you know, that's, 30 some odd years later that would be badass mm. that's what they you know, should do i, I mean, would be you don't even have that. to stick too much to anything i mean no, Lance this Henderson's is its own kicking you know yeah you it's a standalone back. fairy tale that like you can make it connect there's however you so, want i mean there's so much you can do with the concept of a revenge demon uh which is kind of what they do with the sequels i mean they do bring ed harley back uh as a sort of mystical character but you can do a lot with just the idea of a demon of revenge you know there's a lot you there, that's fertile ground for a horror movie franchise yeah i mean as much as i lo- love lance and what he did here i don't even see the point of bringing him back like I'd no unless like, yeah yeah like he, he his story was told all the way right. through but but yeah i found the stuff you're talking about like in, in, in november of 21 like bloody disgusting had a whole thing an exclusive about uh paramount players really they were already through the script writing and they were heading into production, hoping to announce the director soon. Uh, this is November 2021, so like uh, yeah, so almost a year ago. ago. <laughs> yeah, and wow. uh, and then there's like nothing. You can't find yeah. anything else about it. Yeah, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, sometimes when movies are in development, there there won't be any news for a long time, maybe a year or two, you know, depending on how things are going. And Stan Winston, after Pumpkinhead, he did direct one other movie. I mean, obviously, he mostly focuses on special effects stuff. He's still got, at the time that this movie came out, he's still five years away from doing Jurassic Park. So he's still got great stuff ahead of him. He did direct one other movie, though, and it's called A Gnome Named Norm. Uh, Norm with a G, like Gnome. A Gnome Named Norm. It stars, it came out in 1990, stars Anthony Michael Hall and Jerry Orbach. <laughs> and Anthony, Anthony Michael Hall plays a Los Angeles police detective who teams up with a gnome to solve a murder. <laughs> I had, unfortunately, I did not have time to watch this this week. I wanted to, but I focused on watching all the Pumpkinhead sequels instead. <laughs> but I do need, I do feel like I need to see it. Alexa, how many Oscars did a gnome named Norm win? <laughs> Robert Zadar is in it. Robert Zadar. You, oh, you guys, the jaw. Yeah. 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 Huh. Maniac cop himself. Wow. Yeah. So uh, Anthony Michael Hall, so Tommy Doyle, and recently in Halloween. And Kills. recent Halloween. Yeah. 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 But uh, 
No, was it? He's in Weird Science, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's in Weird Science. He's yeah. in all those John Hughes movies. And stuff. Oh man, I, I he's I in the Dead Zone him. TV show. The wife was watching Weird Science the other day. I would like to discuss with that guy, like especially the part where he gets high and he's hanging out with the black guys in the back of their car and he's just like trying to talk like a brother. I'd love to just see how those conversations were. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, well, uh, fellas, I guess that's it for Pumpkinhead. I think we've covered about everything that needs to be said about Pumpkinhead. Yeah, I was going to say just like pop culturally uh, impactful um, and, and the fact that like it was turned into a comic book series. Uh, it had and a, a video, video game. Yeah, it had a video game called Blood Wings, Pumpkinhead's Revenge yep. uh, in 95. Uh, the comic book series uh, was called Pumpkinhead, The Rites of Exorcism. Yep. Uh, it was supposed to be four issues. It was canceled after two. I'm surprised it- we haven't seen more like comic books with Pumpkinhead like we do Aliens and and like Robocop and Predator, like Pumpkinhead versus Predator or you know, like, you yeah. know. And I just copied this paragraph, but it said in 1991, Geometric Design Inc. produced and marketed the first licensed Pumpkinhead model kit. It featured the demon on a display base depicting a portion of a burned out church. The model kit was sculpted by American artist Randy Bowen. The kit was discontinued when Geometric Design released its Pumpkinhead the Metamorphosis Kit in 94, sculpted by Japanese artist Takayuki Takaya. The second set was based on the Pumpkinhead sequel story written by Carducci and Gerani and published in the Dark Horse comic series. The kit included a glossy full-color booklet that concluded the canceled comic. So just throw oh. that out there. Yeah, I had the McFarlane movie monster of Pumpkinhead years ago. I don't know what happened to it, but it, I, oh, I remember nice. that one being a pretty good sculpt. It was it was cool. In 99, the Misfits uh, had their album Famous Monsters, and uh, Pumpkinhead is a song on there all about mm-hmm. Pumpkinhead. Not, not, the be- not the best um, era of Misfits music, uh, in my opinion, but... <laughs> But it's there. <laughs> it's there. It exists. It does exist. Pumpkinhead, just saying, Pumpkinhead obviously touched a lot of people. <laughs> well, that's it for our uh, Pumpkinhead episode. Uh, we will be starting a new series on our next episode, uh, but we're not going to tell you what it is yet. We've hinted at it a couple of times if you're paying attention during this episode, but we'll make an official announcement on our next bonus episode, which will be on your podcast feed next week. Uh, so you'll have to just tune in for that to know what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, you'll. So anyway, we're, are you laughing at Todd? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was. <laughs> uh, well, where can you gentlemen be found on the internet? I am at this is Gary Horde on all the social medias. Also, uh, you can follow at NWA, which is my wrestling company. Not really. Um, it's uh, <laughs> you also, work for him. Yeah. I'm also on uh, at cinema underscore shock. <laughs> you are? No, no, not really. I, mean, <laughs> I should be. I should we, be better about Yeah, it. we are at Cinema underscore Shock on Twitter and Instagram, and uh, and uh, we're on Facebook and all that stuff as well. How about you, Mr. Davis? Uh, for more appreciation of special effects, prosthetic wonders, and Trekkie goodness, please check out my show, Computer Resume Podcast. It's a chronological journey through the entire Star Trek franchise for fans new and old. And each week I sit down with a friend, a comedian, an actor, an author, a ne'er-do-well, and discuss a Star Trek story from top to bottom and other things surrounding it. Available wherever you get your podcasts on all the socials and Patreon at Computer Resume. And I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and DDD Beyond. I'm at Justin underscore Bishop on all the usual places. Again, find us at 
cinema underscore shock or at cinemashock.net. Tell your friends, tell your enemies to listen. Until next week, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Be excellent to each other. When we get out of here, Johnny's going to be carrying his keys home in a knapsack. There weren't a lot of there weren't a lot of big speeches. Not a lot of monologues. And, no, and, no, yeah. no. <laughs> I was waiting for something so much more. And uh, <laughs> Ed Holly, you could have done the the witch voice. Johnny, Johnny. <laughs> uh, we didn't talk about her nearly enough. She was great. She's great. She's good. Yeah. I if you watch back on the movie, another fun thing that the commentary pointed out is that she had lost the stuff she was supposed to grab while she's doing the conjuring. Uh, when the kids laying on the table or something, mm-hmm. and so she like stands over the bottles and she's doing this like waving motion like over the bottles, like Ooh. but she's really <laughs> just trying to find what she's supposed to pick up. <laughs> and, uh, but it worked. She was like, "Do I need to do that again?" They're like, "No, that's great. Go with it." <laughs> anyway, all right, bye everybody. Bye. bye.